Section 4 of Celebrated Crimes, Volume 5, by Alexander Dumas. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Celebrated Crimes, 5, by Alexander Dumas, Section 4. One of his uncles, a flour merchant at Chartres, came habitually twice a year to Paris to settle accounts with his correspondence. A sum of twelve hundred francs, locked up in a drawer, was stolen from him, and accompanied by his nephew, he went to inform the police. On investigation being made, it was found that the chest of drawers had been broken at the top. As at the time of the theft of the seventy-nine louis from the abbey, Derues was the only person known to have entered his uncle's room. The innkeeper swore to this, but the uncle took pains to justify his nephew and showed his confidence shortly after by becoming surety for him to the extent of five thousand livres. Derues failed to pay when the time expired, and the holder of the note was obliged to sue the surety for it. He made use of any means, even the most impudent, which enabled him to appropriate other people's property. A provincial grocer on one occasion sent him a thousand weight of honey in barrels to be sold on commission. Two or three months passed, and he asked for an account of the sale. Derues replied that he had not yet been able to dispose of it advantageously, and there ensued a fresh delay, followed by the same question and the same reply. At length, when more than a year had passed, the grocer came to Paris, examined his barrels, and found that five hundred pounds were missing. He claimed damages from Derues, who declared he had never received any more, and as the honey had been sent in confidence, and there was no contract and no receipt to show, the provincial tradesman could not obtain compensation. As though having risen by the ruin of Madame Legrand and her four children was not enough, Derues grudged even the morsel of bread he had been obliged to leave her. A few days after the fire in the cellar, which enabled him to go through a second bankruptcy, Madame Legrand, now undeceived and not believing his lamentations, demanded the money due to her, according to their agreement. Derues pretended to look for his copy of the contract and could not find it. "'Give me yours, madam,' said he. "'We will write the receipt upon it. Here is the money.' The widow opened her purse and took out her copy. Derues snatched it and tore it up. Now, he exclaimed, you are paid. I owe you nothing now. If you like, I will declare it an oath in court, and no one will disbelieve my word. Wretched man, said the unfortunate widow, may God forgive your soul, but your body will assuredly end on the gallows. It was in vain that she complained and told of this abominable swindle. Derues had been beforehand with her, and the slander he had disseminated bore its fruits. It was said that his old mistress was endeavouring, by an odious falsehood, to destroy the reputation of a man who had refused to be her lover. Although reduced to poverty, she left the house where she had a right to remain rent-free, preferring the hardest and dreariest life to the torture of remaining under the same roof with the man who had caused her ruin. 
we might relate a hundred other pieces of knavery but it must not be supposed that having begun by murder derues would draw back and remain contented with theft two fraudulent bankruptcies would have sufficed for most people for him they were merely a harmless pastime here we must place two dark and obscure stories two crimes of which he is accused two victims whose death groans no one heard the hypocrite's excellent reputation had crossed the parisian bounds a young man from the country intending to start as a grocer in the capital applied to derues for the necessary information and begged for advice he arrived at the latter's house with a sum of eight thousand livres which he placed in derues hands asking him for assistance in finding a business the sight of gold was enough to rouse the instinct of crime in derues and the witches who hailed Macbeth with the promise of royalty did not rouse the latter's ambitious desires to a greater height than the chance of wealth did the greed of the assassin, whose hands, once closed over the eight thousand leaves, were never again relaxed. He received them as a deposit and hid them along with his previous plunder, vowing never to return them. Several days had elapsed when one afternoon Derues returned home with an air of such unusual cheerfulness that the young man questioned him. "'Have you heard some good news for me?' he asked. "'Or have you had some luck yourself?' "'My young friend,' answered Derues, "'as for me, success depends on my own efforts, and fortune smiles on me. But I have promised to be useful to you. Your parents have trusted me, and I must prove that their confidence is well-founded.' I have heard today of a business for disposal in one of the best parts of Paris. You can have it for twelve thousand livres, and I wish I could lend you the amount you want. But you must write to your father, persuade him, reason with him. Do not lose so good a chance. He must make a little sacrifice, and he will be grateful to me later. In accordance with their son's request, the young man's parents dispatched a sum of four thousand livres, requesting Derues to lose no time in concluding the purchase. Three weeks later, the father, very uneasy, arrived in Paris. He came to inquire about his son, having heard nothing from him. Derues received him with the utmost astonishment, appearing convinced that the young man had returned home. One day, he said, the youth informed him that he had heard from his father, who had given up all idea of establishing him in Paris, having arranged an advantageous marriage for him near home, and he had taken his twelve thousand leaves, for which Derues produced a receipt, and started on his return journey. One evening, when nearly dark, Derues had gone out with his guest, who complained of a headache and internal pains. Where did they go? No one knew. But Derues only returned at daybreak, alone, weary, and exhausted and the young man was never again heard of. One of his apprentices was the constant object of reproof. The boy was accused of negligence, wasting his time, of spending three hours over a task which might have been done in less than one. When Derues had convinced the father, a Parisian bourgeois, that his son was a bad boy and a good-for-nothing, he came to this man one day in a state of wild excitement. "'Your son,' he said, ran away yesterday with six hundred leaves, with which I had to meet a bill today. He knew where I kept this money and has taken it. He threatened to go before a magistrate and denounce the thief, 
and was only appeased by being paid the sum he claimed to have lost. But he had gone out with the lad the evening before, and returned alone in the early hours of the morning. However, the veil which concealed the truth was becoming more and more transparent every day. Three bankruptcies had diminished the consideration he enjoyed, and people began to listen to complaints and accusations, which till now had been considered mere inventions designed to injure him. Another attempt at trickery made him feel it desirable to leave the neighborhood. He had rented a house close to his own, the shop of which had been tenanted for seven or eight years by a wine merchant. He required from this man, if he wished to remain where he was, a sum of six hundred lus as payment for goodwill. Although the wine merchant considered it an exorbitant charge, yet on reflection he decided to pay it rather than go, having established a good business on these premises, as was well known. Before long, a still more errant piece of dishonesty gave him an opportunity for revenge. A young man of good family, who was boarding with him in order to gain some business experience, having gone into Deruse's shop to make some purchases, amused himself while waiting by idly writing his name on a piece of blank paper lying on the counter, which he left there without thinking more about it. Deruse, knowing the young man had means, as soon as he had gone, converted the signed paper into a promissory note for 2,000 livres to his order, payable at the majority of the signer. The bill, negotiated in trade, arrived when due at the wine merchants, who, much surprised, called his young boarder and showed him the paper adorned with his signature. The youth was utterly confounded, having no knowledge of the bill whatever, but nevertheless could not deny his signature. On examining the paper carefully, the handwriting was recognized as Derues. The wine merchant sent for him, and when he arrived, made him enter a room, and having locked the door, produced the promissory note. Derues acknowledged having written it, and tried various falsehoods to excuse himself. No one listened to him, and the merchant threatened to place the matter in the hands of the police. Then Derues wept, implored, fell on his knees, acknowledged his guilt, and begged for mercy. He agreed to restore the six hundred leaves exacted from the wine merchant, on condition that he should see the note destroyed and that the matter should end there. He was then about to be married and dreaded a scandal. Shortly after, he married Marie-Louise Nicolai, daughter of a harness-maker at Melun. One's first impression in considering this marriage is one of profound sorrow and utmost pity for the young girl, whose destiny was linked with that of this monster. One thinks of the horrible future, of youth and innocence blighted by the tainting breath of the homicide, of candor united to hypocrisy, of virtue to wickedness, of legitimate desires linked to disgraceful passions, of purity mixed with corruption. The thought of these contrasts is revolting, and one pities such a dreadful fate. But we must not decide hastily. Madame de Ruse has not been convicted of any active part in her husband's later crimes, but her history, combined with his, shows no trace of suffering, nor of any revolt against a terrible complicity. In her case, the evidence is doubtful, and public opinion must decide later. In 1773, Derues relinquished retail business 
and left the Saint-Vatorne neighborhood, having taken an apartment in the Rue de Deux-Bourg, near the Rue Bertin Paris, in the parish of Saint-Germain-la-Rue, where he had been married. He first acted on commission for the Benedictine Camaldian fathers of the forest of Sinart, who had heard of him as a man wholly given to piety. Then, giving himself up to usury, he undertook what is known as business affairs, a profession which, in such hands, could not fail to be lucrative, being aided by his exemplary morals and honest appearance. It was the more easy for him to impose upon others, as he could not be accused of any of the deadly vices which so often end in ruin, gaming, wine, and women. Until now he had displayed only one passion, that of avarice, but now another developed itself, that of ambition. He bought houses and land, and when the money was due, allowed himself to be sued for it. He bought even lawsuits, which he muddled with all the skill of a rascally attorney. Experienced in bankruptcy, he undertook the management of failures, contriving to make dishonesty appear in the light of unfortunate virtue. When this demon was not occupied with poison, his hands were busy with every social iniquity. He could only live and breathe in an atmosphere of corruption. His wife, who had already presented him with a daughter, gave birth to a son in February 1774. Derues, in order to better support the heirs of grandeur and the territorial title which he had assumed, invited persons of distinction to act as sponsors. The child was baptized Tuesday, February 15th. We give the text of the baptismal register as a curiosity. Antoine Maximilien Joseph, son of Antoine Francois de Ruse, gentleman, seigneur of Gandeville, Hershey's, Vicmont, and other places, formerly merchant grocer, and of Madame Marie-Louise Nicolai, his wife, Godfathers T.H. and T.P., Lords of etc., etc., Godmothers Madame M. F.R.C.D.V., etc., etc., signed A.F. de Ruse, Sr. But all this dignity did not exclude the sheriff's officers, whom, as befitted so great a man, he treated with the utmost insolence, overwhelming them with abuse when they came to enforce an execution. Such scandals had several times aroused the curiosity of his neighbors, and did not redound to his credit. His landlord, weary of all this clamor, and most especially weary of never getting any rent without a fight for it, gave him notice to quit. Derues removed to the Rue Beaubourg, where he continued to act as commission agent under the name of Cyrano Derues de Bourri. And now we will concern ourselves no more with the unraveling of this tissue of imposition. We will wander no longer in this labyrinth of fraud, of low and vile intrigue, of dark crime which the clue disappears in the night, and of which the trace is lost in a doubtful mixture of blood and mire. We will listen no longer to the cry of the widow and her four children reduced to beggary, to the groans of obscure victims, to the cries of terror and the death groan which echoed one night through the vaults of a country house near Beauvais. Behold other victims whose cries are yet louder. Behold yet other crimes and a punishment which equals them in terror. 
Let these nameless ghosts, these silent specters, lose themselves in the clear daylight which now appears, and make room for other phantoms which rend their shrouds and issue from the tomb, demanding vengeance. Derues was now soon to have a chance of obtaining immortality. Hitherto his blows have been struck by chance. Henceforth he uses all the resources of his infernal imagination. He concentrates all his strength on one point, conceives and executes his crowning piece of wickedness. He employs for two years all his science as cheat, forger, and poisoner in extending the net which was to entangle a whole family. And, taken in his own snare, he struggles in vain. In vain does he seek to gnaw through the meshes which confine him. The foot placed on the last rung of this ladder of crime stands also on the first step by which he mounts the scaffold. About a mile from villeneuve le roy la sens there stood in 1775 a handsome house, overlooking the windings of the Yon on one side, and on the other a garden and park belonging to the estate of Buisson Suf. It was a large property, admirably situated, and containing productive fields, wood, and water, but not everywhere kept in good order, and showing something of the embarrassed fortune of its owner. During some years the only repairs had been those necessary in the house itself and its immediate vicinity. Here and there pieces of dilapidated wall threatened to fall altogether, and enormous stems of ivy had invaded and stifled vigorous trees. In the remoter portions of the park, briars barred the road and made walking almost impossible. This disorder was not destitute of charm, and at an epoch when landscape gardening consisted chiefly in straight alleys and in giving to nature a cold and monotonous symmetry, one's eyes rested with pleasure on these neglected clumps, on these waters which had taken a different course to that which art had assigned to them, on these unexpected and picturesque scenes. A wide terrace overlooking the winding river extended along the front of the house. Three men were walking on it, two priests and the owner of Boussonceuf, Monsieur de Saint-Vaux de la Motte. One priest was the curé of Villeneuve-le-Roy-le-Sens, the other was a Hamildulian monk, who had come to see the curé about a clerical matter, and who was spending some days at the presbytery. The conversation did not appear to be lively. Every now and then, Monsieur de Lamotte stood still and shading his eyes with his hand from the brilliant sunlight which flooded the plain, and was strongly reflected from the water, endeavored to see if some new object had not appeared on the horizon, then slowly resumed his walk with a movement of uneasy impatience. The tower clock struck with a noisy resonance. Six o'clock already, he exclaimed. They will assuredly not arrive today. Why despair, said the curate. Your servant has gone to meet them. We might see their boat any moment. But my father, returned Monsieur Lamont, the long days are already past. In another hour the mist will rise, and then they would not venture on the river. Well, if that happens, we shall have to be patient. They will stay all night at some little distance, and you will see them tomorrow morning. My brother is right, said the other priest. 
Come, monsieur, do not be anxious. You both speak with the indifference of persons to whom family troubles are unknown. What, said the curé, do you really think that because our sacred profession condemns us both to celibacy, we are therefore unable to comprehend an affection such as yours, on which I myself pronounced the hallowing benediction of the church, if you remember, nearly fifteen years ago? Is it perhaps intentionally, my father, that you recall the date of my marriage? I readily admit that the love of one's neighbor may enlighten you as to another love to which you have yourself been a stranger. I dare say it seems odd to you that a man of my age should be anxious about so little, as though he were a lovesick youth, but for some time past I have had presentiments of evil, and I am really becoming superstitious. He again stood still, gazing up the river, and seeing nothing, resumed his place between the two priests, who had continued their walk. Yes, he continued, I have presentiments which refuse to be shaken off. I am not so old that age can have weakened my powers and reduced me to childishness. I cannot even say what I am afraid of, but separation is painful and causes an involuntary terror. Strange, is it not? Formerly I used to leave my wife for months together, when she was young, and my son only an infant. I loved her passionately, yet I could go with pleasure. Why, I wonder, is it so different now? Why should a journey to Paris on business, and a few hours' delay, make me so terribly uneasy? Do you remember, my father, he resumed after a pause, turning to the curé, do you remember how lovely Marie looked on our wedding day? Do you remember her dazzling complexion and the innocent candor of her expression, the sure token of the most truthful and purest of minds? That is why I love her so much now. We do not now sigh for one another, but the second love is stronger than the first, for it is founded on recollection, and is tranquil and confident in friendship. It is strange that they have not returned. Something must have happened. If they do not return this evening, and I do not now think it possible, I shall go to Paris myself tomorrow. I think, said the other priest, that at twenty you must indeed have been an excitable, a veritable tinderbox, to have retained so much energy. Come, monsieur, try to calm yourself and have patience. You yourself admit it can only be a few hours' delay. But my son accompanied his mother, and he is our only one, and so delicate. He alone remains of our three children, and you do not realize how the affection of parents who feel age approaching is concentrated on an only child. If I lost Edward, I should die. I suppose, then, as you let him go, his presence at Paris was necessary? No, his mother went to obtain a loan which is needed for the improvements required on the estate. Why, then, did you let him go? I would willingly have kept him here, but his mother wished to take him. A separation is as trying to her as to me, and we all but quarreled over it. I gave way. There was one way of satisfying all three. You might have gone also. Yes, but Monsieur le Curé will tell you that a fortnight ago I was chained to my armchair, swearing under my breath like a pagan, and cursing the follies of my youth. Forgive me, my father. I mean that I had the gout, and I forget that I am not the only sufferer, 
and that it racks the old age of the philosopher quite as much as that of the courtier. End of section 4